Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Sean Mitten. Sean is the co-author of When Canada Shut Down, a compilation of memories celebrating this year's 50th anniversary of the legendary 1972 hockey showdown between Team Canada and the Soviet Union, better known as the Summit Series. This is a spoiler alert only if you have been living under a rock. Team Canada captured the eight-game Summit Series, four games to three, with one game tied, winning the dramatic eighth and deciding game in Moscow when Paul Henderson scored the series winner, otherwise known as the goal of the century, with just 34 seconds left on the clock. Sean and his co-authors, Paul Patsku and Alex Braverman, captured 72 amazing untold stories from those involved on the ice and behind the scenes, from both the Soviet and Canadian perspectives. In fact, the book's forward is written by both Russian star goaltender Vadislav Tretiak and Canada's hero, Paul Henderson. Welcome, Sean, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Yeah, first of all, uh, I, I live in Cary, North Carolina, which is just uh, next door to Raleigh, if you will. You know, I'm, I'm doing great. You know, we, we got through another hurricane, so so knock on wood. Wow. Um, but it's, you know, I've been down here for 20 years, and, and where in Canada you get used to the snowstorms, uh, down here you're, you're used to uh, heavy rains and hurricanes, so it's a little bit different uh, natural disasters, if you will. Well, I'm glad to hear that you got through that. I did want to ask Hurricane Ian just went through, so glad you're okay and everyone's, I guess, getting back to normal. What brought right. you down to North Carolina 20 years ago? Because you are originally Canadian. That's right. Yeah, I grew up in Georgetown, Ontario, and it was kind of a random thing where I was working in the tech technology uh, marketplace. And in 1999, it just so happened that they were recruiting for uh, people to come because of the tech boom. And, um, you know, it wasn't something that I woke up uh, thinking about doing, but it ended up coming to fruition. Uh, my first stop was in Richmond, Virginia, and then I ended up being in uh, coming to North Carolina. So, uh, you never know how these journeys happen, uh, Andrew, but that, that was for me, um, um, you know, surprisingly, 20 years later, I'm still here. Well, and I think I'm going to say you were at the leading edge of the, the wave, so to speak, because I hear so many Canadians moving down to the Carolinas. Uh, what is so great about the Carolinas, north and south for Canadians? What's the attraction? Well, you know, I think a couple things. One is it's a, it's a great tech market, um, kind of a, equating to a uh, a market in Canada is like the Kitchener Waterloo Guelph area where you have a lot of tech companies and you have some great universities and really that's the same thing for RTP you have um, you know you have Chapel Hill Duke and Raleigh and so you have some great universities but then you have you know wonderful tech companies as well and so you know if you go to a hockey game you have a very diverse crowd uh, you know I joke to my friends I've seen more Leaf games in Carolina than I ever did when I lived in Ontario but if you go to games, it's, um, you know, very much a hodgepodge of people from Canada, from the northern states, and um, but they bring a college atmosphere. And so pretty fortunate to be able to live, you know, very close to the arena and uh, and attend the games for nominal fees. Fabulous. Well, it's a great way. And I'm glad you're able to keep up with your Leafs. For sure. The 50th anniversary of the Summit Series has had you super busy. So, Sean, I appreciate you making time for me. Congratulations on the book. Let's jump right into the Summit Series itself. Would you say that the 72 Summit Series was about more than hockey? That it was really an East versus West clash of two different ways of life. We had the communist system versus the capitalist system. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the reason, reasons why this series is so well known because it's it was not just about hockey but also about you know the country's ways of life if you will and so you know in addition to that it brought a ton of emotion and so one of the reasons why we think about this still 50 years later is because you know during those those days both in the games in Canada and also in Moscow you know people were were really at the edge of their seats all the games were close we learned so much more about them, not just on the hockey side, but, you know, what, what life was like in, in Moscow, because really we didn't know. And we had 3,000 Canadians over there supporting the team. And when you think about it, it's kind of crazy to think, you know, back then, Moscow didn't have like a tourism center. You're, like, you're, in, you're not going during the Cold War, uh, 3,000 Canadians. So, I mean, that in itself was very, very unique 
And so for them to be over there and experience that, and we got a lot of, we've probably interviewed about 11 different people or at least in terms of who made that trek across, that was very unique in itself. And so I think the other thing that came from it, you don't always hear the word Canadian pride, like in the 50s and 60s, but, you know, in 1972, after they had won, you know, with interviews like Paul Henderson and Harry Sinden and John Ferguson at, directly after the game, one of the first things they mentioned is how they how proud they were to be Canadian. And so I think that's one of the first moments in, in our history where people really thought about Canadian pride. And part of it was because we got to understand how other people live. And in this case, you know, the Soviets and how uh, their way of life is, is a lot different or was a lot different than ours uh, at that time. And, and certainly um, it made us appreciate what we have here in Canada or in Canada. And um, I think that was something that was that I take from that series is the, the, the notion of Canadian pride and how, how important it was. And, and Paul Henderson still talks about that today. Yeah, well, certainly a galvanizing time. And as you say, it gives us a little more appreciation for our way of life. Now, heading into this series, most Canadians, before it began, believed that the NHL's top Canadians would roll over their counterparts from the Soviet Union. That idea quickly came crashing down as the Soviets won the opener in Montreal, 7-3. to Canadians coast to coast to coast were absolutely shocked. Why did the Canadians get stunned in Game 1, and did panic set in right away? Well, I think the first part was, you know, in relation to expectations. I mean, if you read about any of the pundits, in fact, one of the stories that we have in the book is basically a, a collage or an aggregation of all the sports media predictions. And for the most part, they were 8 nothing. you know, winning the series 8 to nothing. but also not only that, but, you know, dominating in certain, certain games. The reality is we really didn't know them, and the scouting that we did was very limited in poor. In fact, the, the time that we sent our scouts over to, to uh, and this is another story, to scout Treciak, uh, he let in eight goals because it happened to be the game before his wedding. <laughs> so, you know, we, we kind of gave, uh, Treciak was, was kind enough to, to write the forward for the book, and we also wished him a happy 50th anniversary for his wedding, knowing that, that that took place just before the series started. But those were the types of really interesting tidbits that if they thought, well, the, the goaltending is going to be the weak, weak link, this is going to be a walkover. And, of course, you know, the first six minutes of the game in Montreal, Canada was up to nothing. And so... You know, this is like, this is the beginning. This is what we predicted. And, of course, um, the Soviets were so much better conditioned than we were. And, uh, you know, it ended up being a 7-3 shellacking, uh, which basically humbled the whole country from, from Victoria to Newfoundland. And uh, it made us wonder, you know, are, are, are we as good as we think we are? And from there, it got worse. Canada went 1-1-1 and in the next three games, including a 5-3 loss in Game 4 in Vancouver, after which the Canadian players were literally booed off the ice. But in the wake of this devastating defeat in Vancouver, Phil Esposito gave a passionate speech that galvanized the country and appeared to swing momentum to our side. When Team Canada arrived in Moscow, Sean, what was waiting for them that they didn't expect in terms of support from home? First of all, I just want to add a little bit to, to your, your comment about the, what we call the, the Esposito rant. Okay. Um, and, and so the interesting thing is, you know, I think you're absolutely right that it galvanized the country, meaning that he expressed himself in a way that was disappointing about the support. But the reality is, uh, and people often say, well, that's the turning point in the series. You know, we interviewed Brad Park, one of the Team Canada members, and his perspective on it was, uh, the players didn't even know about the Esposito rant. You know, they didn't know about that. The Soviet team knew about it because they saw it on TV. But um, really, Team Canada came together in Sweden. And so, you know, they felt like they were up against it. You know, certainly they had to win pretty much all the games in Moscow. And But the other thing was the guys had never really played together before. So the chemistry wasn't there. They didn't get to know each other. Back then, with limited number of teams, we don't have the 30 you know, 30 teams back then, the guys were enemies. They didn't like each other. And so Sweden really was a time for them to, to bond and to, to find out about each other. And that really happened in Sweden, according to Brad Park. And uh, so they had two, you know, hard-fought battle games against Sweden. They got their conditioning back a little bit more. They started kind of liking each other as, as a team. 
and um, and that really helped uh, get them into battle uh, leading up to the to the game, uh, you know, five, six, seven, and eight in Moscow. And certainly, Sean, you alluded to it. In addition to having to get to know each other, the NHLers weren't even in shape, and all right. the Russian players had been army guys. They were in tip-top shape. That, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, the one of the funny things, one of the the stories that we have is about Paul Henderson in relation to getting into shape before the camp started. You know, we all think about him as a, as being the hero, which he, which he definitely is. But, you know, a lot of uh, people didn't even know if he'd make the team. Mm-hmm. And so before the series, he trained with a gentleman named Lloyd Percival. And, and if Canadian historians know about Lloyd and, um, you know, his penchant for training elite athletes all over the country, he was a, was a great importance in terms of uh, helping Paul train in, with, from a stamina perspective and doing you know, probably some of the things that the Soviets were doing so that when he came to camp, not only was he in great shape, but he was one of the top lines with Ron Ellis and, and Bobby Clark. So we, we give a tip of the hat to Lloyd Percival in being, um, you know, a contributor. And that's one of the early stories in the book. But I think the conditioning is kind of caught up in, in towards the end of the series. And um, I think the other thing that's interesting, Andrew, NHL players are used to playing those long grinding seven game series and in this case was an eight game the Soviet team wasn't used to that you know they're used to playing in world championships and the Olympics and it's kind of their one game you know win or die situation so Mm -hmm. to go up against a team seven eight times and and have that hatred to have that the grinding the physicality you know I think that also wore on them as the series uh, progressed so as Team Canada is arriving in Moscow, there's bags of telegrams and letters of support from home as they head into games five through eight. All these bags of support were left near the entrance to the dressing room. And I think the team understood they now had the country behind them. But what were the p- uh, players really thinking, Sean, as they walked into that rink in Moscow? There was the mystique of the Iron Curtain. They didn't know what was going on behind those borders. Their imagination maybe played a little. Talk about some of the problems, real or perceived, that the Canadians uh, saw as they came into Moscow? Well, I think, you know, one of the first things is that, you know, certainly the the Soviet way of life was different. And, and part of that was, in their minds, even separating the wives and the girlfriends from the players. And, you know, that created some conflict to say, you know, we're not going to be separated from our, our spouses, etc. So there were, there were battles in that, in those types of regards that happened. And I'm not sure if those were head games or if that was just saying, this is our culture. This is what we would do in, in our situation. So I think that was kind of one thing, but I think, you know, the other thing was getting used to the, to the Soviet ice, which was a bit different, you know, finding out how, how to play in the larger ice surface and then making those adjustments. And, and certainly in game five, Canada led five, three, uh, going into the third period, so that you know the feeling was the guys were playing well, they were playing better, you know there's a good chance to win, and of course, the Soviets kind of shocked them in scoring you know three quick goals and and winning the game, uh, and that game was also important because if you remember, Paul Henderson went into the boards heavily head first at the end of the second period, you know in today's terms he he absolutely would have had a concussion, he was knocked out, and yet at the same time. He came in and played the third period. Uh, So the funny thing was, you know, he came in probably five or six minutes into the third, scores a breakaway goal. And so he ended up in game five in a losing cause, scoring two goals and an assist, and was the player of the game. Uh, So, I mean, that's fascinating considering that he got the game-winning goal in six, seven, and eight. Yes. So, you know, if he didn't have a helmet on, he probably wouldn't have uh, stayed in the series. And Sean, if I'm not mistaken, he was actually poised to have had five game-winning goals if Canada had not blown leads in game three and five, which gets even more amazing every time we talk about him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he had a great series. They, uh, the Canadian players uh, claimed they were receiving weird phone calls at their hotel to disrupt their sleep. They were being spied on. They were afraid their food was being tampered with. Their steaks were stolen, but they drew the line at the Russians stealing their beer. <laughs> well, you know, we, we had interviewed Tretiak and, um, you know, we, we kind of in some ways asked him about these things that were happening. And he said, you know, why would we want to why would we want to uh, listen to the conversations and, and wiretap the rooms? I mean, for what what purpose, what cause? 
Now, now that doesn't mean that people weren't calling them late at night to maybe maybe razzle them, whether that came from the the Soviet team or just um, you know people associated with that. But you know, he kind of laughed that uh, about the steaks and the beer, and he said, "Well, you know, maybe they lost some beer, and yeah, maybe some steaks were taken." And the funny thing was, in the book, we actually have a wonderful photo, uh, courtesy of the Joe Rizzuto collection, of John Ferguson and Harry Sinden at um, a meatpacking plant in Canada, selecting their large uh, steak that they uh, that they would take out with them to Russia. So it's an incredible photo. Uh, and in fact, they did lose some steaks, and uh, and of course, the players weren't very happy that their beer was gone because the beer the beer in Soviet Union was not very good. So, Sean, as you say, in Game 5, uh, Canada squandered a three-goal lead to lose. And suddenly, Canada has no room for error. Going into right. Game 6, 7, 8, they are trailing the series 3-1-1 one, and one, with that one tie. But that was the last time they would taste defeat. Henderson, as you said, scored three straight game-winning goals in Game 6, 7, and 8 to give Canada the series win. Let's talk about the goal of the century. The Paul Henderson goal was voted as one of the top ten moments in Canadian history. Not just hockey history, but our country's history. September 28, 1972, Paul Henderson flew into the play too fast, missing his first attempt on a Yvonne Cornoyer pass. He fell on the boards, but came out for a fat rebound of a Phil Esposito shot. There were 34 seconds to play when he made it 6-5. Foster Hewitt's iconic call of this series-clinching goal still gives people goosebumps 50 years later. And Sean, if you will permit me, let's play that clip right now. Love to hear it. Sean, I'm getting goosebumps. What's your uh, reaction? And you've you've been so into this goal and this series. I want to hear your comments on this goal of the century. Yeah, I've got a couple comments. The first one is, you know, we've been pretty fortunate to have Paul Henderson himself be a, a part of this process, and uh, and even his grandson. But one of the one of the incredible comments that he made to me was that it five years after the goal had happened, every time that he would see that goal or hear it he would still get goosebumps. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's pretty incredible that, you know, how important and how emotional it was for him. But one of the unique stories that we did in our book is called uh, um, about rare rare occurrences that happen in game eight. And I won't give all the rare occurrences away, but I'll I'll share three of them with you right now. Please. Uh, and, And some people may have heard one of them or so. First one is, Paul Henderson called Peter Mahovlich off the ice before he scored that that historical magical goal. And if you ask Paul, is that something he had ever done before or did afterwards? No, he had never ever called somebody off the ice in in his playing games, either before or after. So that's a that's an absolute rare occurrence. And in fact, you know, if you asked any any hockey player, have you ever at, called another player off the ice? Like, that just doesn't really happen in, in games. The second thing is, once he scored the goal, and again, to your point, Andrew, there's 34 seconds remaining in the game, the whole the whole team mobs him on the ice. Uh, the, even, even off-ice officials, guys in suits and ties, came on the ice to hug and celebrate him. I mean, think about hockey history. When has that ever happened except for, like, you know, Wayne Gretzky – leaping Gordie Howe's record, uh, something of that that ilk. Uh, it doesn't happen where the whole team comes on the ice with, you know, unless the game's in overtime, right? And the game's over. There's still time left on the clock. So to me, the visual of Ken Dryden skating 200 feet to go to, to hug Henderson, it's just an incre- incredible moment. The third one is, so Paul Henderson comes back to the, to the bench. And again, this story is told by Paul Henderson. And Harry Sinden said, okay, guys, let's finish this off. Henderson, get back out there. So, you know, he's thinking of the checking line with, you know, L.S. Henderson and Bobby Clark. And Paul is so spent emotionally, physically, mentally, 
he says to Harry Sinden, I can't go back on. Hmm. And, uh, you know, again, how many times in history of an important moment has a player told his coach, I just can't go back on the ice? <laughs> uh, that just doesn't happen. Uh, you know, imagine Steve Stamkos or, you know, Sidney Crosby. I mean, at, but that's what Paul said. And, and so, um, you know, he, he stayed on the bench. And, uh, but he was being honest. You know, he, did, he wanted the team to win. And yeah. uh, he, was, he was done. Uh, so th- those are three rare occurrences that you, you won't hear, you know, whether it's the 72 series or any ongoing NHL. It's just fascinating. Well, there's just so many great things about this, Sean. You highlighted some of them. I mean, the dig- the digger, the deeper you dig, the more you get. Uh, in fact, Henderson considered his Game 7 game-winning goal to be his greatest goal. He used the ice. He beat four foes and Tretiak. And Henderson says, I told my wife I'll probably never score a bigger goal in my life. And then uh, just 48 hours later, of course, the Game 8 winner. Talk just about, incredible. I mean, there's so many stories. Apparently, it's been said that uh, Henderson not only saved the country's hockey pride, he also saved at least one marriage. <laughs> that That's a wonderful story. And, um, you know, Paul and I talk about, you know, when, when the first book I did for the 40th anniversary is called The Gold That United Canada. And for me, uh, it was important that we collected stories from people all across to understand the emotional aspect of this. And so when I, I approached this, this topic or this, this book idea for Paul, he was very supportive of it. And he even shared one of his favorite stories. And he said, Sean, here's what happened. Uh, it's Christmas time after the goal. And I get a card from this lady who said, Paul, I want to thank you so much because you gave me the best gift that anybody could give me you saved my marriage of course that that's got our attention right and uh and so what happened as the story goes andrew is that uh, these couples this couple was going to sign their divorce papers the the um, eighth and final game uh the beginning of the third period and the husband at that time said listen can we just put this aside until the game's over you know this is a big game and so that was fine she was going to do that so you know five three um you know team canada scores to make it five four uh, you know, they're, they're proud Canadians. They're, they're celebrating the goal. Next thing you know, I think Cornway scores to make it 5-5. And they're, you know, they're really getting into the game. And, of course, with 34 seconds left, uh, Henderson scored. And they're so happy that they're, they're embracing, they're hugging. And they just said, listen, we can't sign the divorce papers today. And they never did. Uh, so, you know, it's just such a wonderful story. Every, every time I tell that story, I still get goosebumps. And... Um, you know, the one regret Paul said that he had was when they, they moved houses, um, you know, somewhere along the lines, that card got lost, but he wished he, he still had it because, uh, you know, it's it's so, so memorable to him. Absolutely. And, and you know, at the, at the post-series reception in Moscow, Soviet goalie Vladislav Tretiak irked Henderson by saying how lucky he had been to score that night. Yet the two, Paul Henderson and Vladislav Tretiak, eventually became great friends and today, their grandsons in regular communication, and you, Sean, uh, were nice enough to have me at the luncheon where you arranged a Zoom fifty years later between Paul Henderson and Vladislav Tretiak. What's the relationship like today? Yeah, I think there's there's a tr- a ton of amount of respect. Um, you know, Tretiak's had a great a great career, and um, he's been an unbelievable hockey ambassador. But I just want to uh, touch upon a little bit about the the grandsons, and so please. Uh, you know, really how they came together was because of us. Uh, what, what had happened was that for when we, when we had a vision of when Canada shut down, we wanted to share these 72 stories, but, but also make sure that they got passed to the younger generation. And so we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could get the two grandsons to connect and understand how they celebrate uh, and, and appreciate hockey? So first of all, we, we approached Paul and they said, you know, would, would, would it be okay to interview your grandson, Alton? And he said, absolutely. And Alton really embraced being a part of this. So we first interviewed him about his experience growing up, uh, you know, as the, as the grandson of, of a great hockey legend, uh, which, was, which was fantastic. From there, uh, we were able to try to reach out to what we thought, if we can get Max Treciak, it wouldn't it be wonderful if we get them to interact via Zoom call. And so we were fortunate that, that happened um, at the time. Uh, the, uh, Max plays for the KHL. And after the Olympics, there was uh, a COVID outbreak, and they basically halted the season. 
So that allowed us to have some a little bit of bandwidth to get access to him. And he had a two-year-old daughter, so we had to call at a certain time. But he literally sat in his, his uh, car in the parking lot to do this Zoom with Alton. And it was a wonderful meet and greet. They got to connect and share stories. And, uh, you know, that was one of probably the best experiences that I had in doing the book. It's an amazing legacy of this series to think that the grandchildren are now have a relationship. Yeah. Sean, you talked a little about Anderson's concussion. It, uh, he should not have even been playing in game eight. He was, as you mentioned, knocked unconscious in game five in Moscow. He lobbied head coach Harry Sinden to allow him to play. Henderson now says if he'd suffered that injury today under our concussion protocols, it's likely he would have been erased from one of the most important moments in hockey history. Do you want to talk a little about the what's now known as the Paul Henderson helmet and why he was even wearing one at the time? And subsequent to that series, uh, was he able to get a sponsorship deal? Yeah, you know, he. Uh, if you look back at the team photos, which are incredible, I think there was only... Uh, two or three other players on Team Canada who wore helmets. And if my memory serves correct, Stan Makita was one. And uh, he played in the game in, in Prague, the ninth game. And then Red Berenson also had one. So, you know, and all the, all the Soviet players wore helmets. That was just what they did. And um, So the, first of all, the fact that he wore a helmet was rare and, and he had success. But that, you know, for, for Paul... Uh, you know, he had mentioned that at one point he took a slap shot to the head. Um, so he had another concussion that he had, uh, that occurred. And back then, back then, uh, this was at a point in time when he played for Detroit, you know, the, the coach said, you know, we don't want you to wear a helmet. And, and Paul felt more comfortable in playing with one. And what, what transpired, uh, you know, a few days after that conversation was said, you know, let, let me, let me wear the helmet, see how it goes. If I'm not playing up the snuff to your snuff, I'll take it off. And a few days later, he scored. Uh, he scored four goals and had an assist. And his coach uh, said, "Abel said, Paul, keep the helmet on." And uh, you're absolutely right. He did. He did have a, a sponsorship for that helmet. And a lot of kids, uh, you know, in Southern Ontario, said, "You know, I, I want to get a Henderson helmet." That was the <laughs> that was the helmet that they wanted. Uh, so you know, the, uh, we do have a story in the book about uh, the MV, the most valuable helmet. That's what we called it. <laughs> That's great. I want to ask you, Sean, if you feel comfortable talking about some of the friction that came up years later between Paul Henderson and his line mate, Bobby Clark. Uh, I guess maybe you can just fill in a little bit of the backstory about Bobby Clark was involved in a, you know, a bit of an incident uh, with a slash and how he later didn't think that kind of Paul Henderson stood up for him. And what's their relationship like today? And, and maybe there was a little uh, misperce misperception about that they're uh, bristling between each other since the summit series. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, first of all, to uh, take a step back, you know, Valerie Karlamov was an unbelievable player in the series and going into it, we really didn't know, know about him that much. Uh, in fact, after game one, when he scored a, a really great goal, Harold Ballard said that I, we want to get, we, we'd purchase Valerie Karlamov for a million dollars. So, I mean, back then in 1972, whether he would have or not, you know, it's quite a, a bold statement. But <laughs> yes, uh, but when, when Canada was down, you know, Bobby Clark, you know, it's it's said that he was given a direct to take Karlamov out. And in doing so, uh, took a wicked chop at his ankle and uh, and took him out of the series. Uh, Karlamov missed a game, but he came back in later on. But he wasn't at, you know, he wasn't at his 100 percent best. And is that, is that the way we wanted to play? I mean, certainly a lot of Canadians say that doesn't represent who we are as a people. But Bobby Clark uh, was also a win-at-all-cost person. You know, while there may be this rift between Henderson and, and Bobby Clark, I'm, I would also go further to say that I'm not sure all the, all the players on the team would have also agreed with how Bobby handled that situation. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's it's a little bit more broader than just, I mean, Paul happens to be the hero and the legend, but not everybody would have said that's that's the way to go. There's another funny story that I've, I've heard from the players about, just in regards to Bobby Clark, and it kind of talks about him as, as his character a little bit. You know, after the series was over, now Team Canada has this bond, right? They're, they, they're brothers in arms. You know, Rod Seeley talked that, you know, if they're, if they're doing a pregame skate, they would 
look at another guy, they'd give him the head nod, they'd give him a little tap on the stick, tap on the knee pads and, and say, you know, I, I know you're there, you're my brother. Well, you know, one of the games after uh, in the in the early series, uh, it's post-whistle, um, you know, the Flyers, I can't remember who they're playing, it might have been the Canadians. And, you know, after kind of a scrum in the corner, uh, Bobby Clark just takes a whack in the back of the, of the leg of one of the players who he played against with in team Canada. And the guy's like, Bobby, what the heck, you know, you know, why the slash? And he's like, yeah, no reason, you know, and that was Bobby, you know, it's like, he didn't care. It was, he was always kind of uh, an antagonist, if you will. And, uh, you know, certainly the, the Philadelphia Flyers, the Broad Street Bullies were not known for, for their gentlemanly behavior. And, and Bobby was the leader of that team. So, you know, I think, I think that's, you know, certainly a remarkable thing. Um, but that's, that speaks a little bit to Bobby himself. And yeah. um, I think there will always be a little bit of something because Paul didn't see the game that way. Well, Bobby certainly played to his brand, as they say. That's right. I think what's interesting is Paul Henderson also feels compelled today to correct perceived slights against the former Soviets for the way they were dismissed originally by Canadian players and media before the series. He acknowledges today that, you know, they had totally underestimated them. Maybe, Sean, you want to talk about a little Zoom he had with one of his uh, Russian compatriots, Yakushev, in a Zoom call that you arranged recently. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, the one just to, to reference, uh, we had a wonderful event with the NHL alumni, uh, just so people know. And, you know, as that, we were very fortunate that Paul uh, wanted to come. We actually didn't ask him. He wanted to come and be a part of that and share stories. And one of the, um, the co-authors in our in our, our book, uh, Alex Braverman, who, by the way, has done a wonderful job in connecting us with some of the Russian um, hockey network, including the, the stars from the Soviet team, including Boris Mikhailov, Tretiak, and, and Yakashev. And I think, you know, going back to your question is, we really didn't know a lot about them. We didn't know who their stars were. Uh, we didn't know their style of play. And there was a bit of hockey arrogance on the Canadian side um, that we were going to dominate. And so, you know, as the series went on, seeing somebody like Yakashev, who was this tall gentleman who had great hands, uh, was a force to be reckoned with. Guys, you know, Phyllis Bezito said, you know, well, could you join the Boston Bruins? We'd love to have you on our team. Hmm. I mean, that's how they thought about this this young man. Uh, Yakashev uh, had a great career with Spartak, but he would go on to be one of the stars in the series. And I, I believe he scored, Richard Bendel did a book about recalibrating the statistics because they weren't done uh, they weren't measured accurately and i think yakashev had the most points in the whole series wow um so yeah that's kind of spoke to the respect that, that the team canada had for him and years later i think they would they would kind of see him as kind of a gentle giant in that he was very respectful um you know he would be involved in a lot of the different anniversaries and, and him and uh Trechiak and makailov have been really great ambassadors uh but there's a ton of respect between Henderson and Yakashev and the others. Now, to this day, Sean, uh, everyone wonders why Paul Henderson is not in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Paul Henderson insists he's not angry with being excluded from the Hockey Hall of Fame. In fact, he says he is glad to not be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. What is his interesting explanation for why he's okay? Well, I mean, he kind of joked at the, at the the luncheon that it's like if if I'm in the Hall of Fame, then people will stop talking about me, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I think was a was a funny and poignant uh, comment. You know, it's the Hockey Hall of Fame is, I hate to say it, but it's kind of political in nature in that you know, uh, I think if you ask the common person on the street, Paul Henderson should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, even if you ask people like, I think Wayne Gretzky has said it. Uh, players on his team have said it. Uh, that he should be in there. There's a lot of guys who've had wonderful careers, but in terms of being famous and, you know, everybody in, in Canada knows Paul Henderson. Yeah. You know, having said that, it wasn't just about an eight game series. He had a, he had a really good career and he was a clutch player even when he played in Detroit and Toronto. In fact, when we were doing research for the story that we called the Henderson hat trick, which we think ongoing should be if, if a player gets three game winning goals in a row, that should be called the Henderson hat trick, just like the Gordie Howe has, you know, the fight, the goal and assist. Yep. 
we found out that Paul actually had 39 game-winning goals in his career, and he didn't even know that. Uh, so, you know, he was a clutch performer all through his career. He will always be a legend in Canadian folklore. I, I really hope he gets in the Hall of Fame one day, but it's if not, you know, he's, I think he, he knows he's lived, lived a good life, and, um, yep. and he has a lot of respect and, and love. Well, I'm with you, Sean. He should be in. He is Mr. Clutch. I want to talk to you about some memorabilia. Back in 72, these things were not so important. And of course, today, memorabilia is so important and valuable. And there were, there's an item I want to get your take on. So first was the sweater. In 2010, Canadian businessman Mitch Goldhar bought Henderson's Game 8 sweater for $1.2 million. But what about the series-winning puck? Pat Stapleton retrieved the game-winning puck. Can you please talk about what happened with that puck? And what you believe happened to that puck since? Yeah, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things. Um, first of all, uh, Pat Stapleton. It's sad that he, you know, he passed on before the 50th anniversary. He was such a great teammate and had a wonderful sense of humor. And I think, you know, kind of in a playful way, all through the years, uh, he's always kind of wanted people to talk about it, whether whether he has that puck or or didn't have that puck. And I think, you know, we've seen, you know, through Paul Patsku, um, some of the outtakes of him kind of reaching into the net to, to get the goal, uh, to get the, the game-winning puck. But, um, you know, I think one of the interesting things is the pucks back then were nondescript. You know, there wasn't a lot to look at in terms of, you know, whether you're looking at a jersey or sticks or things of that nature. You know, it was, it was a black puck. So <laughs> it was really hard to distinguish and easy to probably get mixed up. You know, I've heard stories that, you know, he had it back with him to, you know, brought back to Ontario. And at some point in time, maybe some of his grandkids had, had taken the puck and used it to play in the yard, you know, as <laughs> as, as kids will do. Yeah. Um, you know, whether those true stories are kind of accurate, I guess that will be part of, uh, we'll always have the, the, the big questions about it. But I think he did probably have the puck. Where that puck is right now, who knows? <laughs> well, as you say, it's nice to always have a little mystery to That's the right. story. That's right. <laughs> Sean, one of the reasons your book is so amazing is you gathered stories from the Soviet perspective. What was it like getting these stories from the Russian side? It, it really was fantastic. Um, and part of it was just to understand their perspective and even how they, how they look at the series today. You know, first of all, there's... We interviewed, as I mentioned, uh, Trechiak, Mikhailov, and Yakashev. Um, on some of the family side, we also interviewed the daughter of Sergei Pavlov, and he was the, the, the individual who signed the contract in Prague in, in April of that year. Uh, we interviewed Max Petrov, who was the son of Vladimir Petrov. We interviewed um, Anatoly Tarasov, who was basically the father of Russian hockey, uh, his grandson, who's involved in a... a an amateur organization called the Golden Puck in, in in Russia. And then, but probably one of my favorite people to talk to and who was so supportive of us during this process was somebody we affectionately call the Russian stick boy. And uh, his name is Alexei Kochekov. And what's fascinating about Alexei is he was basically the stick boy from uh, 1970 to 1984 for the Soviet national team. So if you can imagine how many unbelievable, you know, historical matches that he saw, including the 72 series from the side of the bench. And his story is unique because what happened was growing up, uh, he was a goaltender just like Trechiak. And so he was a couple years older. And in the youth leagues, um, he ended up being the backup for Trechiak, mm. which was how they formed this friendship. And so he, um, he would end up going to Soviet national games and one of the unique kind of angles and stories that I, you know, found during the, the, the writing of this book is that if you look back in the annals of, of Soviet hockey, their equipment was really poor. Everything from their skates and their shoulder pads, knee pads, a lot of times it was homemade, um, but also the sticks. And so if you even look at the style of the Soviet hockey, it was more about pass, 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 cycle and get a shot close to the net. It wasn't about taking slap shots. But if you think about, if you think about it, if you have poor sticks and you're taking slap shots, you're gonna break them. Mm -hmm. And so 
really that's where he came into play is because if players would um, be playing, they didn't want to come off the ice if they broke a stick. And so Tarasov one day said to Kochekov, come in, I need you to support the players if they break a stick and hand them a stick uh, so they don't have to come off the ice. And really that was kind of the early stages of the stick boy on the Russian side in 1970 as part of the Soviet national team. And, uh, and he stayed on. Uh, so not only was he there for the, the series, but, you know, he'd go to world championships. He'd go to, to um, you know, participate in different Olympics. And later in life, when Tretiak became the, the head of the Russian Hockey Federation, uh, Alexei became the general manager for the Soviet national junior teams. So for about, I think in the neighborhood of like 15 to 20 years, I think it was around 16 maybe, uh, he was the general manager traveling the world with some of the great young uh, Russian players, like, for example, like, um, you know, Andre Vasilevsky is an example. And he told us a great story that we have in the book about him. But, you know, what a unbelievable history uh, that he has seen in his time. And, uh, you know, we, we know him as the Russian stick boy, and he's got two <laughs> or three stories in the book that are fascinating. It sounds like a fictional character, Sean. I'm glad you cleared it up. The Russian stick boy is a real person and had all these great experiences. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I also want to ask you, Sean, about, as you mentioned, 3,000 Canadians had made the trip to Moscow with the team for games 5, 6, 7, 8. Tell us about their experiences. And it does sound crazy to think going behind the Iron Curtain. They were brave and their experiences must have been very unique over there. Yeah. I mean, imagine, imagine saying we, uh, a bunch of people want to go to a party and you want to pick the most adventurous people and curious people that you could ever find. Uh, this Russian 3000 would probably be a pretty good uh, you know, profile of that. So, And it was very uh, diverse in nature. Um, we found, for example, a couple of young girls who were 21 who wanted to go over. They were big hockey fans. Uh, you know, they, they had an unbelievable time. There was the couples that went over. Uh, there were celebrities like Carol Ballard and Jean Bellevue and Sillaps, former uh, Edmonton Oiler Dr. Randy Gregg, who you know a lot of people know for winning five Stanley Cups. Uh, he was over there as a 17-year-old, and he had some fantastic stories. Mm. So, you know, there was they they st stayed in different places, whether it was the Interest Hotel or um, a Russian University. A gentleman named Jim Herter has some wonderful stories about staying at the at the university and even, you know, trying to explore around town um, and going, you know, going up uh, a university elevator to see the top of, a, of the building. And Russian security said, I'm sorry, there's nothing up there. Um, mm. So, you know, there are places you could go. There's places you couldn't go. But they, they uh, by and large, felt that they were treated very well by the Russian or Soviet people, um, but it was a very different experience um, from, you know, landing in, in Moscow and having to give up your passport until you came home. Uh, you know, that's somewhat of an unsettling feeling right off the bat. Yeah, it's eerie. <laughs> it, exactly, exactly. Sean, I want to play a little round with you here of internet true or false. <laughs> These are all things from game eight in Moscow, and maybe you can uh, help clarify in the crowd that night, game eight, 19-year-old future Russian president Vladimir Putin attended with his father. Internet true or false? Wow. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, I, I'm going to guess. I'm, I'm going to say uh, I'm going to say it's false. All right. We'll have to we'll have to look into that one further. Yeah. Series organizer Alan Eagleson was actually getting marched out of the arena in Moscow by soldiers in security when the Russians were slow to verify Ivan Cornwallier's 5-5 tying goal. Peter Mahovlich and the Canadian players had to hop the boards to his rescue. <laughs> Did this actually happen? And what ended up happening with the uh, cop who grabbed Eagleson? Because apparently he became later the chief of police for Moscow. Yeah, the, the answer is yes. And in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a, wonderful, well, a wonderful story. It's a, it's a crazy story, if you will. And we actually have that in our uh, rare occurrences because... You know, when would you have any type of administration uh, hop onto the ice for any hockey game? I mean, I don't think it's ever happened in history. Um, so, yeah, Eagleson, you know, he was uh, pretty daring. And, uh, I mean, obviously there's books about Eagleson, 
both good and bad uh, in terms of his impact in the series. But, you know, I would I would say that it, it probably would, the series wouldn't happen if it wasn't for him. Uh, having said that, you know, what he did to the players was not right. And, um, you know, there was a reason that he wasn't included in 50th anniversary celebrations. Mm-hmm. The the uh, schools on the day of Game 8, Ontario's education minister ordered every available TV set in provincial schools to tune into Game 8 as a learning aid for the kids. Is that internet true or false? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, the Ontario minister uh, was all for schools uh, either playing the games or actually allowing kids to go home and watch it. Um, he, he truly understood this was a, a, a huge moment in Canadian history. And, uh, you know, ultimately that would be the role of the principals of the schools. But, you know, from our knowledge, um, obviously there's a lot, of, a lot of people who have stories about being in gymnasiums or cafeterias and watching that final game, kind of the man on the moon moment for Canada. Um, you know, that, that'll likely never happen again. That's a great way to say it, the man on the moon moment. Internet true or false? You talked a little, Sean, about game nine. Slovakian-born Stan Mikita didn't get in a game, but Coach Harry Sin made him captain for game nine, an exhibition they played in Prague, Canada did, on the way home, which was a 3-3 tie. Internet true or false? Absolutely true. And it's, um, you know, it, even when, when we were doing the book, in some ways we kind of, um, we kind of, I, I would wouldn't say forgot, but didn't misremember game nine a little bit. And if you can imagine, um, you know, the game eight celebration was crazy. The guys went out and obviously partied pretty hard. And then the next day they have to, to travel to Prague, Czechoslovakia. And one of the reasons they set that up in addition to the Sweden games is that was basically how um, some of the exhibition money that paid for the series. So mm -hmm. those were done for financial reasons, but uh, to your point about Stan Makita, it was a very, very special moment because really that's where his family was from. And so he was made captain. In fact, they had uh, a very special dinner and uh, reception for him where he spoke uh, to his people and his, and his teammates were there as well. So we, we wrote a specific story about Stan Makita, um, you know, relating to Czechoslovakia. And it was a, a really a great moment for him and his family. Internet true or false? Leafs owner Harold Ballard, never one to miss free publicity, ordered the Garden Switchboard to answer all incoming calls with the greeting, home of Paul Henderson. Internet true or false? That is, that is true. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned Harold Ballard because he, he was actually at the games in Moscow. Yeah, I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, what was, we wrote a full story about Ballard for, um, <laughs> we call it fraud and misconduct. And the reason is, <laughs> Before the series has started, there was actually a federal case against Harold Ballard for uh, for fraud and theft. And so he was supposed to be, um, he was going to go through a, a legal case before the series, but most of his references were heading off to Moscow. So they delayed uh, basically his sentencing. So he was able through a letter written by Alan Eagleson to be able to go to Moscow. He was there for four days, which we have two or three interesting stories about that. He came back, and I believe it was in October of 1972, he was sentenced, uh, uh, and he went to Kingston Pre uh, Penitentiary. So he, he did uh, real jail time, um, and so that, that, that's in the book. And uh, even, you know, we, we kind of have some stories about what it was like in, in the court that day uh, with his son Bill Ballard there. And, uh, you know, it, that's one of those things that kind of get lost in the weeds, but it's a really interesting story about Aller, Harold Ballard uh, literally doing uh, jail time around that, that time of the series. Well, when you talk about characters, Harold Ballard leads that list of characters. Most definitely. I got one more internet true or false specifically for you. In Georgetown, Ontario, a housewife who didn't even like hockey was listening to the game on the radio. She burned off ner nervous energy. She was wandering her home, cleaning everything in sight. When Henderson scored the series-winning goal, she cried, ran out to talk to her neighbors who thought she must have been having a breakdown. That woman was Marilyn Mitten, your mom. Internet true or false? That, that, that is true. You know, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, uh, as a takeaway for me personally, was that when I first wrote the, the 40th anniversary book, The Goal That United Canada, uh, one of the things that I realized that was most times that 
the baby boomers hadn't shared the stories with their kids or grandkids. And so part of it is asking the question, you know, where were you in 72? Where were you during the Paul Henderson goal? And, you know, having now authored or co-authored two different books regarding the series, um, you know, I had, I asked my mom about that and, and sure enough, she had a very visceral moment. Um, and, and she's, you know, somewhat of a hockey fan, but not to the extent that most people are. And, and so, um, you know, she had this moment and, and she cried when Henderson scored and, you know, I was pretty young at that time, so I don't have that recollection, but, um, really what it, what it motivated me to do is for, for other people to ask their, their kids and grandkids and share their stories. And so it's a great Canadian collective moment. It's amazing. Sean, I want to ask you about two big hockey names that were not involved or they were a little, you can fill us in. Where were Bobby Orr and Bobby Hall? One of the interesting things about that time, and we, we did a story called The Inconvenience of, of the Series, and it was, um, it was actually talked about by the, the president of the NHL, Clarence Campbell, in Game 3 in Winnipeg. We have the interviews for that. Um, what was interesting is, if you remember back in 1972, there was a number of things happening. There was two expansion teams coming in. There was the, the Atlanta Flames and the New York Islanders. But the other thing that was happening was the launch of the WHA. And so relating to your Bobby Hall uh, question, Bobby Hall signed a million dollar contract to play for the Winnipeg Jets. So um, basically there was a ruling that he was not able to play for Team Canada. And, um, you know, a lot of people were upset about that. Uh, but the funny thing was he actually went to game three in Winnipeg and sat in the stands and signed autographs. Oh, wow. So I thought that was a pretty, there's some great photos of him uh, signing fans autographs and, and not playing but being a participant in uh, in the in the stands on the other side um bobby orr uh unfortunately wasn't able to play in the series because of his knee injury and i think there was always this hope that you know if he continued to practice um continue to skate with the team that there might become a time when he would be able to play and in fact the Soviets also wanted him to play because they knew about Bobby Orr. Uh, they had access through scouting the Stanley Cup uh, final tapes. And so they wanted to see, you know, how he played. Uh, so they gave basically a special roster spot just in case he was able to overcome his injuries and play in the series. And even though that he, he never played, he, he definitely was, um, he was a presence for the team. Uh, I think they appreciated him being there, but I think, you know, in the years past, um, you know, Bobby has, he's kind of stood to the side and given, you know, all the, all the recognition of the players, even though you look at the team Canada photo and he he's in there. Yeah. Oh, well it was, it was a shame he wasn't able to play and I'm sure everyone wondered, but it was the knees. You, you know, the funny thing is if he would, if he would have played, um, it's most likely the games wouldn't gone to the eighth game to be, you know, to be counted and we wouldn't yeah. be talking about it. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, maybe, I hate to say it, maybe it's good that he didn't play so that we're having these <laughs> yeah. conversations. Made for a better story for sure. That's right. Now, now, Sean, you're so deep into the hoopla around the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series. You're so busy talking about it, talking about your book. But I have to ask, do you have a next book in mind? What's your next project, Sean? Oh, wow. Um I think I need to take a breath. This has been, uh, you know, this has been a very deep and long project. Um, you know, we, we were very committed emotionally. Uh, we, we feel like we really had a responsibility for the players to do the best that we could on both sides, you know, not just team Canada, but also the Soviet national team. And we really appreciated all their, all their insights. Uh, to, to answer your question, there's, if there's one, one thing that happened in the process was, you know, we had an outline of all these different stories. Um, I've probably written close to 90 stories. And what would happen is um, something else would come in and knock another story out. And so one of the things, uh, I don't want to say a pattern, but um, one topic, topical area that was, you know, we had a few stories cut was Trechiak. And it's, it's because we had so, much, so many stories about him. Mm -hmm. um, he really is, you know, you think about Wayne Gretzky as an ambassador of Canadian hockey, Gretzky and Trechiak are really good friends. 
uh, Tretiak is the same on the on the the Russian hockey side as Gretzky is to Canada. Uh, the things that he's accomplished, the things that he's done, including having goalie schools in North America, um, in terms of being involved in the anniversaries, in terms of being involved in the international international hockey. Um, you know, there, there was probably a number of stories that we, we left off only because we didn't want to have such an imbalance of Tretiak stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is a fascinating character. Uh, he's a great representative of, of, uh, of Russian hockey. And my, my, my disappointment was that he never got to play in the NHL. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we wrote, we wrote a couple stories about that in the book, including him being drafted by the Montreal Canadiens. Um, you know, what, what symmetry, you know, with Dryden and him playing in the final game and him being drafted by, by the Canadians. Uh, so I don't, I don't know that that book will happen, but, um, certainly I'm fascinated by Tretiak and, and he's a great character. Well, one story always leads to the next. <laughs> yes, it does. I want to give a shout out to your co-author, Paul Patsku. He is an incredible archivist for hockey. He's a little under the radar and uh, uh, doesn't. he's so modest, doesn't get maybe all the credit. Do you just want to talk about your co-author, Paul Patsku, and what he means to the managing the history of hockey? Yeah, you're, you're, you're uh, totally right is that he's underappreciated uh, in many aspects. And the number of hockey projects that he's involved in, or even the number of hockey projects that reach out to him to, to ask for his support is unbelievable. Paul and I worked together very closely through all this. I mean, he was, he had access to all the uh, intermissions from game one to game nine that nobody else has. All the CBC radio recordings, I've listened to all eight games on radio with Bob Cole. You know, as we, we'd go back and forth about different stories throughout the whole project, I can tell you that almost every day or every time that I talked to him, he'd have a request from someone about video or something. And I'm, I'm talking about from hockey media that you'd know that um other hockey projects you know i I would say that um you know one of the goals that i have on this is i think paul pascal should be in the hockey hall of fame as a builder you know without all the contributions that he's made whether it's the nhl 100 whether it's the the you know the russian five movie uh, he's been involved in the cbc documentaries about the 72 series uh he he is an unbelievable resource to the hockey community, and you're right, a lot of people don't know about him, but he has his fingerprints on a lot of things, and uh, he, he deserves to be recognized further. Well, here, here. That's great. Well said. Sean, as we wrap up, thank you very much for your time today. Where can we best follow you? Where can we buy the book? Where can we keep up on all your various projects? Yeah, um, you know, first of all, they can buy the book at lulu.com, L-U-L-U. Um, they can, people can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best, best way to, to find me. I don't do Twitter as much as, as I probably could or should. Um, and then, you know, Facebook as well. Um, but you know, for me, uh, LinkedIn is probably the place to go. And, you know, I will say that, um, you know, for the 50th, we're going to be in the DVD box set for, um, for, for the CBC documentary. So we're really excited about that coming out before Christmas uh, to be one of the assets in that, that wonderful DVD box set for the 50th. And that should be coming out hopefully mid-November. That's incredible. That's great, Sean. So when Canada shut down, what a great book. And it's glad to hear you'll be in different mediums, be available everywhere. I want to thank you for your time. And I wish you continued success. And let's here's to our Leafs coming up. I got to ask you, 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 you still cheer for your Leafs or you switch over to the hurricane? Well, I mean, I, I've got, I would say I have two teams. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a season ticket holder uh, in Carolina, and there are a lot of fun games to go to. But, you know, I, I grew up as a Leaf fan. And so, you know, my heyday, I always cheered for Daryl Sittler and Mike Palmatier, um, which gives you a little bit of idea about my age. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. But, but you know, I, uh, but the, you know, I always cheer for the blue and white. And uh, I think they have a really good team. I would hope. I think one of the things that's different about the Carolina market versus the Leafs is people are so hard on the Leafs. Like, I think yeah. if, if that team was in Carolina, like they just play, you know, like give the guys a little bit of, of breathing room. Um, I think they have a wonderful team, Matthews and Marner and, and Riley. Um, 
and I, I hope they let them fail a little bit when they need to and then succeed. They will succeed. Um, but one of the best Leaf teams that there's ever been. Well, we got no choice. 55th year we're going to be entering and uh, hope springs eternal for a new <laughs> season of our Leafs. Yep, that's right. Sean, thank you very much again and all the best. Thanks, Andrew. I had a, I had a blast. Great. And to the listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Sean Mitten, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.